Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Flypass podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Flypass editor John Sutheran and more interestingly, I guess, uh, former Red Arrow Simon Mead. Hello, thank you for joining us. Morning, welcome. I'm sure being a Red Arrow is a bit like being Doctor Who or James Bond. It's the only thing anybody talks about. But uh, tell us a bit more about who you are and your career and how you got started. Sure. Uh, well, actually, my flying career started before I joined the Air Force. I was in the Air Training Corps at school and started flying when I was 13 and three quarters, which was the earliest age then. And by 16, I was an instructor on a gliding school at West Morning, 618 Gliding School, flying Kirby Cadet Mark III and Sudberg aircraft, old wooden cloth daubed, fantastic open cockpit type machines, which was great fun as a 16-year-old. I joined the Air Force when I was 18, went pretty swiftly through the training system, three years flying chipmunks, jet provost, hawk, hunter, and then eventually ended up on the Harrier, where I was uh, flying on the front line in Germany when I was 21. So pretty swift introduction to military fast jet operations, really. It was fantastic being given a toy set of such magnitude at such a young age. It was a great thing to behold. I was in the Air Force until I was just over 40. But um, in that time, three Harrier tours, two Red Arrows tours, and managed to only stay on the ground for 18 months in that whole time. But Harry, I mean, even that's quite an interesting thing to, to flow. Harry is a great airplane, and I managed to fly three different variants of it. So I got the lightweight uh, Hawker Siddeley designed airplane, which is the GR3. And then, of course, the Americans took that design, McDonnell Douglas turned it into a bigger airplane, which was more capable in terms of operations. So it was the uh, GR5, GR7, and we also had a two-seater as well, a T10, so for the new airplane as well as the old one. So although in principle they were flying the same procedures, same technology, it was a very different airplane to fly. So you flew. The GR3, it was, you, you strapped it on, whereas the, the GR5, GR7, you, you sat in and operated the systems. I suppose flying something like the Harrier, it never felt like a day job. It was always something interesting to... Are you kidding me? It was never a day job. 30, 23 years in the Air Force, I don't think I ever felt it as a, as a day job. Every day was different. And... Uh, as a passionate uh, aviator, to be given all this fantastic kit to play with and, and fly was, was was a dream. What's the process then for going from drive, uh, flying a typical aircraft to then going into vertical takeoff? I mean, how do you make that transition? When the uh, Harrier first came into service, there was no such thing as a two-seater. And so they started out by giving the pilots a helicopter course to learn how to hover, how to land vertically, how to take off vertically. In reality, the, the comparison between flying a helicopter and a Harrier is, is marginal, but the whole course still continued. When I went through OCU, the first thing we did is went to Shawbury and flew a helicopter for, for six hours, where they crammed in the 34-hour basic flying training helicopter course, which was immense fun because it meant all the AVA, all the airmanship, you didn't have to worry about it. You didn't have to about the systems of the airplane. There was no time. You just had to do pure flying. You know, by hour five, we were flying into very small clearings in very large woods, which are incredibly exciting for a, for a 20-year-old. And that then takes you on to uh, the Yoshi, the conversion unit, where they did have a two-seat Harrier. And so that every time you do something new with the airplane, um, you, or you do it in the two-seater and then go and practice in the single seat. The first three months, I think it was, was all about learning the vertical and short takeoff capabilities of the airplane. It was all about taking off from short strips, landing on pads, 
operating off the grass. It was only after you mastered that fairly significant skill base that you could actually go and think about doing anything with the airplane, such as low-level attack missions, combat, and everything else that we did. Because you did three tours on Harriers. Three tours, yeah. Whereabouts did you? First tour was at uh, RF Goodersloe in the eastern part of what was then West, West Germany. The second one was a, a short tour on one squadron at RF Wittering. And then uh, the third one was as a flight commander and executive officer on four squadron, again in Germany, at Larbrook. So yeah, so bounced around two tours in Germany. But of course, that third tour in, in Germany, we were in the throes of converted to night attack. And by that stage, the German authorities didn't allow any military low flying in Germany at all, let alone at night. So we spent most of our time deployed to UK bases, mainly Scotland, Scottish bases, to do the, the night attack conversion and training. Was there ever a genuine sense that you might get the call to go and partake in conflict at any point? Or was, was it always kind of quite a distant thing for the pilots in that period? And like everything in life, you don't think it's going to happen to you. Do you? As a 21-year-old flying these airplanes around, sadly, you see a few accidents and a few people killed around you. But you, in that safety bubble of your own naivety. And the same thing about conflict. I mean, the Harrier traditionally was in the Falklands and has been involved in other things. And the Air Force throughout its life has evolved in conflicts as directed by the government. And therefore, the possibility is always there. But you, I think the training is created so that you could take the safety elements out of it and then go into conflict. And indeed, I was involved in the, the Balkans conflict. And I think the first time I dropped a, a bomb in anger was very difficult because when you're flying around in peacetime, there are multiple safety levels in the airplanes. You have physical locks on the weapons on the wing pylons. You have physical switches to, to turn in the cockpit. You have software protections. And you have logic to make sure that everything matches up. But when you have to actually go and drop something in anger, you have to slowly remove all of those until the last thing is your thumb pushing a button. And that was a a significant, shall we say, uh, moment that I always remember. When did this sort of transition, when, when you start thinking maybe display pilot, you know, flying is what you wanted to transition over to, when did, when did that come in? When I was about the age of four, I think, <laughs> to be honest. Um, uh, my parents used to take me to the uh, Big and Hill Air Show, which was always a fantastic show. And I can remember watching the Red Arrows there. And I, I always had the aspiration to fly in the Red Arrows and to be a military fast jet pilot. So I, I remember a bit of... Um, hiatus when I was 20, having been awarded my wings at RF Valley, thinking, hmm, well, I've done that. What do I do now? But then you move on and you slowly I understand that as the the onion of the, the opportunity unravels and you take layer to layer, there's so much more uh, to go on to. I did a instructional tour at RF Chivner, flying as a tactics instructor at, uh, in Devon. And there they had a solo hawk display slot. Uh, and I managed to get that for two years. And that really was the first part of my display flying career, really. Fabulous. Then there were a lot more air shows than there, were, there are now. And uh, I was doing 30 or 40 displays a year around the UK and Europe. So is that the traditional route? You, you're a display pilot as an individual pilot, and then possibly you get the call and you can go towards the Red Arrows? A number of people do, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, any military fast jet RF pilot can apply. There's a certain criteria. I think currently it's um, 1,500 hours fast jet and at least one frontline tour. And that's, that's a guide. But if they haven't done any display flying, that's not an impediment to making an application or indeed getting on the team. 
it's really their flying skills. And as the leader, when I look back on that, of all the things that I was responsible for, selection of the pilots, I think, was the most important thing because you can't do that unless you build absolute trust between the nine guys. And you think about an office environment, you might have a group of people and you think one person, well, it's stick him in the corner because they don't sort of get on with him, but it's okay because the rest of us are okay. And that happens everywhere. But in the Red Arrows, that can't happen. You can't have an oddball. You can't have someone that doesn't fit, which is why all the pilots are involved in the selection process because it has to work for them. So every year, the team chemistry changes because you move three people out, three people move in, and then therefore you've got a different selection choice. So it's not just flying still, it's temperament as well. You look. It's temperament. You're looking for very good pilots, but you're not necessarily looking for the best pilots. You're looking for the pilots that fit, pilots that can be consistent even when they're very tired because the season is a long one and there's great demands of, of the team. The Hawk is a, an aging airplane. There's no autopilot in the Hawk, T-Mark 1. The pilots have to fly it everywhere, be that to the show at Bournemouth or to the Middle East. So there's, there's a lot that goes on. And when you're getting to the end of August where you work six days a week continuously since April, uh, you, you can get tired and you need people then that can still perform as a team as well as in the airplane consistently. So what's the process for going from being a regular RF pilot? How do you get in? Are you tested? What was the transitional process? It's an interesting question because when I first tried to get in the team, I didn't. I was the display pilot at Chivin, as you said, and I was in the key period. So if you're too young, you don't have the experience. And if you're too old, the Air Force won't let you go there because they've got other aspirations for you. So there's a window of opportunity of about maybe five or seven years, depending on what aircraft you're flying. And I was in the prime of that window flying and displaying at, at Chivna, and I was flying the T-Mark 1, um, and I applied twice, and I didn't get in. And I didn't understand that. So then I was posted back to the Harriers, and I was in Norway, and the selection signal came out, applications are invited, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't there to answer it, but a mate of mine who knew I wanted to get in the team put an application in for me. He didn't know I'd already decided not to do that, and I was going to go back to the area and become a, a weapons instructor. And as it happens, I was called forward to shortlist, and I'll explain what that means in a second. And because I now decided not to be on the team, I just went there to have an enjoyable day, see my mates, uh, fly with the team, and I got selected. And on reflection on that, what I saw was that when I went the two times before, I was trying to be something I thought they wanted me to be rather than who I actually was. Because the third time I was putting on no pretenses. And if you have a selection which is very short, so when I first went for selection, you flew in the morning, you had an interview in the afternoon, a dinner in the evening, and that was it. So it was a one-day process. So the first thing I did when I joined as the leader was to change that. And the, we had the luxury of going to Cyprus every year for a month. And I decided I'd bring the shortlist selectees out there. So they were with us for three or four days. And you can't hide for three or four days. You can't be anything other than you are. And that, I think, process was a positive change. And um, you can really then get to know the people behind the, um, the glassy facade of a fighter pilot. And as you say, it's not just your decision, it's the, it's the, the team. Yeah, I mean, the, the leader has a lot to do with it. So, for example, if there are 50 applicants, every pilot has a, an orange book that follows him around, has all these flying reports in it. And every year you are categorized with your low average, average, above average, and so forth. And you're scored in your actual physical capabilities within flying operations. So you get those books of the people that apply. You go through those and work out a, a long list 
and you cut the bottom off with people who haven't got enough flying hours and the top with the F4 says you can't have him or you can't have him and then you get a middle ground and then the team will sit around and discuss them. And the Air Force is small enough that somebody will always know them. And actually, if those guys are keen enough, they will have made themselves known. So you do know them. And then they'll be invited to come and fly. If they're really keen, they'll pitch up to Scampton, fly in the back seats, get the experience, because I tell you, it's an eye-opening experience first time you sit in the back of the team, even as an experienced pilot. And then you, the team selects a shortlist. And the shortlist is invited, as I say, for the three or four days for selection. And at the end of that, uh, you have the similar discussion. Who did what? How did they fare? There is a formal interview with the, uh, the senior officers. There is a flying test now, which is a very good inclusion, which was put in by my predecessor. But the real thing is, how do the guys get on? So by the time they get to shortlist, I think we pretty much assume they have the flying capabilities, or some people do fail the flying test. But essentially, it's the, um, the chemistry. And, that's, and therefore, every pilot has the right of veto. So it's only the, the six that go on to the following year that have the right of veto, and they can do that. Do people ever drop out voluntarily? Not that I've ever known. There's some people in the Air Force who have no aspiration to, to fly in the red hours, and quite low, so they want to be mainstream, be experts on the platform that they fly, be weapons instructors, etc., etc. And it's not necessarily a career move to move sideways into the display team, but it hasn't stopped some people getting on. But people that do have the aspiration to be on the team generally seem to stick with it. As I said, the first flight you fly, you come out with eyes like saucers. Um, and and I've, I've witnessed that time after time. People don't understand how you can fly so close and so dynamically so close to the ground. But you learn pretty quickly. What's the learning curve then? So you start day one and then... Start day one and normally in a normal season, the main part of the team go on leave and then the leader of the new guys will start to fly and you'll start at altitude 5,000 feet and you'll loop and roll and you teach them the basic techniques. They, all military pilots do formation flying anyway as a bread and butter skill, but you fly with them until they can stay positioned. It doesn't have to be the right position as long as they can stay still. You can then bring them down and you work them down to all the way through different levels till you get to about to the display height of 300 feet. And once they're there, by that time stage, they are really rock solid. They're in the right place. You can then start to move a little bit of movement because, of course, the whole market of red arrows display is changing shapes of the formation. So you, you should start a little bit of movement. Then you increase the numbers, give them a stem, which is, means that one or two people behind the leader so that the wings can then move backwards and forwards. And there's a lot of technique in that. And so you have to teach that. There's a lot of what-ifs go on because you're in a dynamic environment where you have to know what's going to happen instantly if something else happens. So the whole raison d'etre of the Reds is a, if you did that, what would I do? And if that failed, what would you do? And it, the conversation goes on all the time. If you're ever in a brief or a debrief for the Red Arrows, there's always that conversation happening because you have to know. You can't have a book with all the what-ifs because it would be an encyclopedia. So it has to be a continuously working knowledge of the people that are in the team at the time. And then eventually you move until you've got ready for the first nine ship, which is a big milestone in the team's training. And you do that and then you uh, go from the first nine ship. Then you've got to put the polish on it. And normally the, at that stage, February, March time in the UK, the weather's pretty poor and you can't do the full show very often. That's why the team deploy somewhere with better weather so you can do the rolling, the, the flat and the full show three times a day, every day to put the polish 
In terms of sort of formation, so if you're in the, in the Red Arrows, how much closer are you flying in terms of formation as opposed to if you were just flying on a squadron? Well, um, on the squadron, low f- formation flying essentially is a means to an end. You're going to get a large number of airplanes from one position to another, maybe in cloud efficiently. The cloud, as anybody who flies airplanes will know, can be pretty thin or it can be really thick, a really dark piece super. And you fly as close as you need to to, to facilitate that. Most of the time, it's not that close. Uh, with the Red Arrows, clearly, there's a reason for flying close and therefore they are close. And some of the formations... The aircraft are long and they, they look close, but actually they're really close, maybe six or eight feet apart at the closest point. And of course, the closest point, you're not looking at the airplane that you're closest to because all the pilots, when you in the big formations, all the pilots are just looking at the leader, the leader's airplane, because that's how you, when you maneuver, you'll maneuver together. But you may be closest to the guy who's to your right that you're not even looking at which is comes back to my point about trust right at the beginning that when you're flying like that you have to trust that people are going to be in the right place all the time and then when you start adding movement although it looks as if the guys are moving into empty space they're not of course because there's someone behind him that they can't see he's actually moving into airspace that he's just vacated so there has to be a complete bond of trust that the guy will be moving in the right place at the right time so as you say, everyone just watches the leader and forgets about everybody else around them. Yeah, you 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 have a sort of sixth sense. You have a half an eye. Depends on the formation shape you're trying to do. Sometimes you'll have a, a heads in line, so you can see up the line. But effectively, on an echelon, you're doing that. But you're taking reference off of the airplane next to you to get the width. But essentially, if you're looking diagonally across the formation, then you're looking at the leader, even though you've got two or three airplanes bouncing in front of you. You're really trying to ignore them, and that's the key. To the red hour success is that they can do that. So you've got all this hardware bouncing around six or eight feet away from you and you're not looking at it. It might be in your periphery. It's just slightly to your left and forward of you, but you're not. You're looking through that and to the leader. And that's why people come out on their first trip with eyes that big. It must be hard to sort of filter that out, I suppose. It is. The new guys now go up the front, so they have less of that. And they, as they become more experienced, you move backwards in the formation. But still, it's a big uh, learning curve right at the beginning. That's the opposite of what I thought. I thought you put the new guys at the back, so they're out of harm's way. But yeah, well, traditionally, if you go back 15 years, they used to do that. I think it changed in the mid-80s. But I've spoken to guys who went in in their first year at the back, and they were hanging on, really, with their fingertips, because there's a lot going on at the back end. And the thought now is that you put them at the front, and very quickly they become stable platform. And you've got to inspire, you've got to motivate people. If you put them in the challenging position first and then put them into the less challenging position in the subsequent years, they've got to be highly professional people, which of course they are, to, to be motivated to do that. Whereas if you do it the other way around and put them in the easier, inverted commas, slots to start with and push them back into the more challenging roles, then that's, that's a better thing to do. Of course, after the first year, one of the th- first years is selected to become the synchro pair which is the other thing. So the synchro pair, the, the two aircraft that do all the opposing maneuvers, I was lucky enough to do that. So you become the deputy in your second year and then the leader of the synchro in your third year. And that was just the best pure flying experience ever. Highly professional, but very challenging to get it right because you're keeping it safe, but then you try to make it look, it's a circus illusion, trying to make it look as if it's a collision, even though it's not. So are you allocated a specific slot or could any pilot after training, take any position in the formation? 
You, know, you have your position. In any one year, you have your position. And then, as I say, three leave. So you've got to reshuffle. The new guys move back and one goes into synchro. And then the new guy, the new, new guys will come in at the front. Generally, if you don't go into synchro, you stay on the, the same side. Because after one year of just looking out the right-hand screen, you don't want to go on the left-hand side. And there's a lot of banter between the left-hand and the right-hand side. And subtly, there's, there's differences. Difficult to explain about fudge, but the right out with the airplanes, you take the Diamond 9 that everybody knows and loves. Everybody, the, all the aircraft are not flying directly behind the one in front of them because the engines won't work in the efflux of the aircraft in front of them. So all the aircraft are stepped down as you go back and as you go outwards uh, onto the wings. Now, if you think about as the uh, formation flies past, one side, because of the parallax of that, one side will look wider and one side will look closer to the audience if everybody was flying in the perfect positions. And therefore they don't. And therefore the team uh, at the fudge, which is what the, the month of polishing is about, is that the guys are moving positions all the time relative to the, the, the crowd by one, two, three feet. And that you, to perfect it, you have to, that you stay in that position to do that. And so when you do a diamond bend, for example, the inside guys will move out on their references two feet. And then as you go away from the crowd, they'll slide back in. Nobody notices that. But as you go past the crowd and you've got 50,000 cameras taking a picture, everybody will get the perfect diamond, even though actually you're not flying a perfect diamond anymore because you fudged to make it look as if it is. So you are actually thinking about what someone on the ground is getting with their camera as opposed to just... All the time. Yeah. All the time. It's all about how it looks. Be that, for example, another thing, the what-ifs we talked about, yeah. a lot of it's safety, but a lot of it's aesthetics. So if there's a smoke failure, one aircraft on one side has a smoke failure, a pod failure, rather than it just looking odd that there's one aircraft not using smoke, there's an instant change. The leader or the manager may call it from the ground or the leader might see it from the air and you'll revert to the eight doesn't have smoke plan or the three has lost his nose light plan. You instantly have all these things in the, in the bag to, to meet. It looks symmetrical, whatever you're doing. Even have, if someone um, wakes up with flu, can't fly, there's an eight ship plan, there's a seven ship plan, there's whatever, if red four's not there, or what happens if red two's not there. So there's all these multiple pre-planned, pre-rehearsed instances where it's not quite right. Actually, if you fly eight and you cover it with smoke, as, as you tend to do, a lot of people don't notice. Who choreographs the displays or how are they choreographed? It's ultimately the leader's responsibility. The, um, there's a whole sort of top drawer of manoeuvres that have been done in the past and they're, sometimes they're out for a few years and then they're shaken off and put back in the show. There's only certain things you can do with certain airplanes and the Hawk has its performance limitations, its power limitations. But really, as important as what the individual manoeuvre is, how you link them together. So if you do one thing, then you can't then subsequently do something else because you don't have the performance to get around the corner or you're not next to the crowd. So the Reds, the important driver is to get something going on all the time in front of the crowd. And so that flowing backwards and forwards, looping, rolling, barreling, the quarter clovers to try and position it in front of the crowd. And then in the second half, I mean, today's show is has moved on Amazingly, from when I was the leader, it's a much more dynamic second half, which is fantastic. But they're in because you now have two or three sections all split. The danger is that 
A, you don't have something going on at some point because creating the timing is more difficult, but also you can't operate in such poor weather. And we all know that we go to air shows and it's not always the clear blue sky sunny day that we'd love, but the Reds will fly down to the limits they're allowed, able to. Uh, but if you've got aircraft scattered a lot more, then you have higher limits to, to ensure that you can safely rejoin. How do you find the Hawk as the display aircraft? Love it. Love it. It's a... It's, I never flew the Nat. I mean, if you speak to the Nat guys, they just wax lyrical about the airplane. And I'm sure it was. I've seen some great movies of that aircraft. The Hawk had advantages over the Nat, but that Nat didn't carry much fuel. So they were challenged to going long distances if you do transiting from one display to another. And indeed, when they did the displays, they didn't have much of gas left to get to the landing base. The Hawk's better than that. It has more fuel, uh, greater range, and it's also a lovely airplane to fly. It's very dynamic, very maneuverable. It's just a sports car, really. There's not much nose in front of you. So actually, you sit in it and you feel as if you are the machine. Whereas if you sit in a Harrow, for example, you're actually in it. There's a lot around you, a lot of instrumentation in front of you. So you're in operating an airplane, whereas the Hawk, you're sitting in and you're flying a sports car. It's fantastic. What would be your dream aircraft for a display? I would like... I flew the... The Hawk T2 before I left the service when it was still being developed. And I love that airplane and with a bit of maneuver flap. I'm sure that would, the Reds would love to have something like that. But I don't think we'll ever go to and neither should we go to using frontline airplanes like the American display teams do. That seems a, a significant waste of resources. But going smaller, going into piston turboprop aircraft won't have the dynamics. I think we should sit in that two-seat trainer world, which is where they are at the moment. What will happen when the T1s finally reach the end of their life in 10 or 15 years? I don't know. The, the structure of our whole flying training system has changed now, so we don't have a fleet of T1s like we used to have. Effectively, the training system is privatised, and therefore the Air Force doesn't have to call on a large fleet of airplanes to, to draw in. So that's a question for our seniors down the line. So the T1s, are they the original 35-year-old ones? Some of them, of course, you can change lots on an airplane and every airplane, be it a, a jet fighter or an airliner, as they go through their life, components are changed out on a routine basis. So there's very little that stays in the airplane across its life, mainly the structural part of the airplane, the spar, and that's really what limits an airplane's life. And the more you fatigue it, the shorter the life becomes. And so the fatigue in any airplane, but especially the display airplanes are monitored very closely. So I read the, the Red Arrows did a foreign tour to Asia, Pacific region in 2016. So they would, would they literally fly, they'd fly all the way there and kind of hop across yes, the world? Yes, I've got about a two and a half hour bottom, I have to say. <sighs> Strapped to a reaction seat, that's about enough for me. And that is um, coincidentally what the Hawk does maximum. So from maybe middle of England to Nice, that's about the distance. That's about as far as you can go. So if you want to go further, you have to hop. So I led two world tours. The world tours went to the Far East and it takes about a week to get to Dubai because you fly just two trips a day and then plan in every three or four days you have to have a stop to catch up just in case there are any issues along the route. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a long slog taking those airplanes and all the equipment to, to go, but it's the team is now used far beyond domestic display flying. It's used as a tool of government to support defence export sales and other uh, government criteria across the world. They've only literally just come back from the Middle East. They're used almost every year now. So each year there will be a short tour and then the following year will be a long tour. I think that's the plan going forward. 
because outside of Europe, which has a lot of display teams, there aren't many, and therefore it becomes highly significant. It's a diplomatic tool that can benefit our country. Access is amazing. You know, the, all the leaders outside of Europe want to be involved with it, and uh, I've had tea with quite a few of them over my time. That kind of goes to one of your questions I'm going to steal, actually. Like, so in terms of all the other foreign display teams, is there anyone who's like a main rival? Oh, that's a good question. I was always asked. So the top 10 questions, that was probably number seven. You know, what is the, what is the best display team in the world? And my answer is instantly, it's impossible to say that because everybody flies different airplanes with different rules. So the, you take the American teams, they fly backwards and forwards. And sometimes you think, well, that's a bit boring compared with the European teams, but that's the rules they have. They're not allowed to change display in front of the crowd. So they fly past, go away, change formation, come back. That's the rules they, they fly under. But as a result, they fly criminally close. I have flown in the back of both the Thunders and the Blue Angels, and those saucers came back out in my eyes. I tell you, they were three or four feet apart. They were very close, but they like flying high wing-loading airplanes, very stable, therefore they can do that quite safely. The Fracatricolori, I told you that in the red arrows, we look all the way to the leader. So the old, all nine airplanes fly as one. They don't, the Fracky don't do that. They fly off the airplane next to them. So there's always a ripple going down the line. It's more difficult to fly that way, but it, it brings out the charisma, the, cult, the Italian culture you would expect. And you can equate and so there's a quite a different feel to their display. But I flew a lot with the, um, the Patu Swiss. I think they're part-time pilots. They do an amazing job. So everybody has their own reason for being there and their own benefits and their own limitations. And uh, it's impossible to compare that. You've got to pick one, I'm afraid. That is just not fair. <laughs> um, as their neutral country, let me say the Patri Swiss. Although I do love the Frecchia Did that happen often then? Like, the way you fly with you or you over there? No, well, as I say, we used to have to top through Europe to get to Cyprus or beyond. And so why not stay at the base of one of the display pilots? So we would always go out via the, the French at Saint-Laurent or the, the Italians or even the Swiss. So you would interact. And, and it, it's just like any other professional body. You're swapping best practice, really. You're learning how they do things. And we, we learn uh, from them. They learn from us. Must be a lot of camaraderie and banter as well when you're all together. Absolutely, yeah. And occasionally there are big air shows where four or five display teams are invited together. And that is an amazing spectacle. And it doesn't happen that often. But when it does, it's, it's pretty, pretty good. One last question on in this section. In how does a retired red one get his thrills, or do you just not even bother to try and compete? Well, I, I decided when I left the Air Force not to go into flying. I did play with the idea of going into civil airlines, but I wanted to go into business, which I, was a, more of a, an attraction to me. So that's that's what I did. So I went into, went to business for fifteen years, and then got sort of sucked back to mother. So now I run the uh, centrifuge facility for the Air Force as an employee of Tales and also do a reservist job for the Air Force at RF Cromwell. So I'm, I'm sort of back there, but um, happy to sip in the back with a glass of wine now. So you don't head down to Alton Towers once a year then to, oh. to, to get some adrenaline flowing? No, thank you very much. <laughs> in terms of centrifuge, how often do you find yourself in there or is that something you let other people do now? Well, it's quite a busy thing. All pilots have to undergo centrifuge training. 
and it's a key part of their own personal safety system. And so we're very busy. The, the pipeline of initial training, they all come through here and every time they change an aircraft type, they come to us and then they have to come back every five years as a refresher. There's also lots of trials and evaluation work going on. We've just finished uh, work with the Civil Aviation Authority looking into space travel and all of the physical effects of space travel might have on different sectors of the society, the different age groups, uh, which is quite interesting. So there's a lot of varied work. Some of the work we do is with very inexperienced pilots because the Centuries has a simulator built into it. So effectively, if the pilot's flying it, he demands his own G, which is a unique feature of our Centuries over anybody else's. But some of the guys that come through have never flown an airplane at all. And therefore, we have to fly either from the console upstairs or pre-programmed track. So we've already done all that work. We've done the pre-recording uh, from the gondola so that they can then have a consistent ride. How's the G-loading on uh, flying the Red Arrows compared to like being in the centrifuge? Well, the Hawk has a, I think at the moment, is uh, is about 7G limited, 7.2 when we flew it. 8G was a, a definite no-no. I think when it first came into service, it was up to 9, but it's been slowly brought back to to preserve the uh, fatigue life of the airplane, and quite rightly so. But it's it's pretty uh, dynamic. If you fly something like a Typhoon, then the onset rate and the maximum G is far higher. But there are just different ways of coping with that. That G, anything above about 4G is significant in terms of physiology. And if you don't do anything about the G in terms of physical uh, physical process that you got to go to uh, stop going unconscious, you will go unconscious. And is there a particular maneuver uh, as a red arrow that you look forward to the most or you dreaded the most? Well, as, as a wingman, and the further back and the further out, the, blues, the more dynamic and the more enjoyable. As a synchro pair guy, then the opposition loop was always a real challenge to try and get that because over the top of the loop, of course, you're quite slow speed, so your maneuverability is less. So you set that up halfway up. So by the time you get to the top, it's far too late to to get the fudge to make it look as if you're colliding. And as the leader, anything that got in front of the crowd, really. If you think about uh, it might take five seconds to put the bank on because the aircraft out in the wings, if you've got a big formation, they might be 200 feet out. And therefore, you can't just whip the bank on and get the turn going. You've got to roll in pretty slowly. So five or six seconds, you've gone over half a mile. And therefore, if you're not on the top of your game, you, you can you can very quickly go downwind and disappear out of the side of the you know, the crowd, and of course you have got the weather to play with, but the terrain, which is the beauty of the job, there was never one display that was the same as another. Always different, always a different challenge, and I loved it. Was that the best part of being a red arrow? Just the challenge, the challenge, and the beauty was when I first walked in the door, it was just staying in the right place and and not messing up. And as you got more experienced, you got to do more with the airplane and then, it, and then came back as leader. The challenges were completely different. So it's just a growing portfolio of, of challenge and reward. And you've obviously supplied a lot of people to join the, the RAF over the years with your displays. Yeah, well, I just think about my own experience. You know, I'm just motivated to fly. Back then, I didn't really understand the difference between flying a Harrier and a jumbo jet. But I just knew I wanted to fly because these guys did such great stuff at the air show. So, yeah. And I've always taken that with me. You know, I talk to air cadet squadrons quite a lot who are a great feeder for the Air Force. And uh, if I can help people see what a great job it is, then fantastic. Excellent. I think that's a good place to leave it. Great. So thank you very much, Simon. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. 
This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.